0: So our next speaker uh, this morning is uh, Dr. Uh, Kenneth Castro. He's a Rear Admiral in the U.S. Public Health Service and has been the Director of the Division of TB Elimination at CDC for the past 18 years. He's going to speak about TB and uh, HIV and tuberculosis co-infection.
1: Thank you, Laura. Good morning. I'd like to start by thanking the organizers uh, for the opportunity to be here. Um, I'm entering my 28th uh, year at CEC, and my career has been spent uh, with two pathogens, first 10 years with uh, HIV. From there, I moved uh, to tuberculosis. Um, So it's a real pleasure to have this opportunity to talk about uh, this uh, subject matter with you. What I'd like to do is start by knowing the audience. So, if you could please use your ARS buttons and tell me in your opinion, frankly, how would you rank your expertise in tuberculosis management? One is a novice and five is an expert who could replace me here. Okay, so I have some work to do uh, to uh, turn uh, the uh, large number of you into uh, Category 5. Um, so, but this is actually very useful to me because I will know uh, what to uh, spend more time on rather than try to gloss over some of these other uh, subjects or points that I like to make. Uh, so I have an outline in store for you. I'd like to uh, cover the path of fizz clinical manifestations, uh, touched very briefly on the epidemiology of tuberculosis and HIV co-infection in both the United States and elsewhere. Some of the challenges we face in the diagnosis as well as management, uh, try to focus on what drugs to use for tuberculosis in the setting of antiretroviral treatment. Uh, when to start uh, antiretroviral therapy, um, the immune reconstitution inflammatory syndrome, uh, touch on prevention, uh, relying on isoniazid preventive therapy. uh, Won't talk much about ART. Suffice it to say that there are plenty of studies that show that in areas where tuberculosis and HIV are rampant, uh, antiretroviral therapy is one of the best ways to Uh, ameliorate uh, the incidence of tuberculosis. Also talk about infection control very briefly. So here's, uh, I don't know how well this shows. Uh, uh, By the way, uh, I apologize for not getting the slides to you ahead of time, uh, but you will have them uh, so anything that you're not seeing well, hopefully you'll have an opportunity to um, annotate. Uh, Each one of these also has uh, these citations if you care to go back uh, over them. So here's, uh, in this slide, Tuberculosis 101. Uh, it comes from uh, Peter Small and Paulo Fujiwara a, a paper in New England Neural Medicine, uh, and this diagram I found very useful. So the first thing is the etiologic agent of tuberculosis is mycobacterium tuberculosis complex. It is transmitted from person to person when someone with tuberculosis disease of the respiratory system Um, coughs or sneezes generating uh, thereby airborne droplet nuclei. We call them airborne droplet nuclei because they're very small and remain suspended in air, unlike other more dense particles which will become quickly precipitated and not remain suspended in air. Anyone who shares airspace in poorly ventilated environments, especially during long hours, is prone to becoming infected uh, with tuberculosis. For many years, the tuberculosis skin test has been the uh, only tool we've had to diagnose latent tuberculosis infection. The two commercial uh, FDA-approved uh, assays are aplosol and tubersol. Uh We now have uh, interferon gamma release assays, or IDRAs, Two of them approved by FDA are uh, T-spot and quantiferin gold um, in tube. After a person becomes infected, uh, there's about a five year, uh, 5% year uh, risk of progression within the first two years, um, another 5% risk of progression within their lifetime. So in the absence of HIV infection and normal uh, immune system, there's about a 10% lifetime risk of developing tuberculosis disease from uh, latent infection. However, in the setting of HIV infection, it's been clearly shown that the risk of progression is about 10% per year, and uh, the uh, lifetime risk uh, hovers uh, between 36 and 50%. Pulmonary uh, tuberculosis is the most uh, common form among uh, all cases reported to CDC in 2009. 78% had pulmonary tuberculosis with or without extrapulmonary tuberculosis. About one in five of those reported cases had extrapulmonary TB. uh, But it should be noted that tuberculosis can happen in any organ of the body. Uh, You can see it uh, in the intestine and CNS, uh, genital urinary system, um, and uh, actually it's a common cause of infertility in some of the developing countries where it's uh, fairly common. When we try to treat persons with tuberculosis, we have both individual and public health benefits uh, that we're after. Um, the individual, of course, will get better. Um, we try to prevent morbidity and mortality by killing the bacilli rapidly, and the rifamycins play a key role. In the case of tuberculosis, we talk about short-course chemotherapy as uh, requiring six months of treatment, as opposed to the nine months, twelve, or even two years uh, that uh, takes to treat people with multidrug-resistant tuberculosis. We use multiple drugs to prevent the emergence of resistance and um, continue uh, the uh, duration of treatment for at least six months to prevent uh, opportunities for relapse. In terms of public health benefits, uh, by treating anyone with disease, you remove the source of contagion from the community. So you prevent transmission and we also very much focus on identifying contacts to see who's latently infected or who also has tuberculosis disease. And the other thing we do try to do is protect uh, those available drugs for future generations. Let me skip over this and just give you the story of tuberculosis in our country. Uh, this graph shows uh, the TV instance from 1982 through 2009. I've added two, 2010 data. But if I were to show you this graph back to 1953 when national surveillance for tuberculosis began, you would have seen a steady downward trend uh, uh, going down at a rate of about 5 to 6% per year. And as you can see, that came to a screeching halt in 1984. And from 1985 to 1992, we had an unprecedented resurgence of tuberculosis in our country, driven by the HIV co-epidemic, by the occurrence of multidrug-resistant tuberculosis, institutional transmission, immigration from countries where TB is very common, and from an infrastructure that was weakened by a premature declaration of victory over tuberculosis. All this uh, gave rise to a lot of concern. Congress uh, adjudicated and appropriated new resources. Uh, We came up with a national plan which has been implemented uh, in large measure. As a result, we've had uh, the next uh, multiple years of declining trends of tuberculosis. Let me just go back and show you some of the problems that we observed uh, during that time. This slide summarizes many of the outbreaks uh, in Florida, New York, uh, hospitals in Italy, in Madrid, Argentina, in a prison system in New York. And I've added at the bottom the most recent um, uh, description of an outbreak in uh, KwaZulu-Natal, South Africa. And what's uh, worth noticing here is that in each one of these settings, uh, most of the affected population was HIV infected from 91 to 100 percent, death rate unacceptably high from 72 to 98 percent, and the time from the diagnosis uh, to death was from 4 to 16 weeks in all of these uh, settings. And that really shows uh, the ravaging effect of multidrug-resistant tuberculosis in predominantly HIV-infected individuals. Since uh, the uh, decline of tuberculosis, we've also seen a concomitant decrease in the number of HIV co-infected persons who are reported with tuberculosis. These two graphs show all ages uh, in blue and uh, ages 25 to 44 in red. So you see that it's been about halves from about 30 percent to 15 percent in the 25 to 44 age group. However, the situation in the world is quite different. Uh, in um, the regions of the world uh, that uh, are classified by the World Health Organization, uh, these are the six regions, uh, Africa, Southeast Asia, Western Pacific, Eastern Mediterranean, Europe, and the Americas. You will see that very recently in the 1990s. TB trends were going up and only recently leveled off, driven by the HIV epidemic in Sub-Saharan Africa. Also in Eastern Europe, there was about a 40% increase in the 1990s, more recently leveling off. Um, The situation in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa is uh, shown here, uh, color-coded, the dark, um, what's this um, lilac uh, type color? Uh, shows uh, countries with more than 400 uh, cases per 100,000. But what's really interesting is it, the percentages shown in there. If you go to TB clinics, you basically have an HIV clinic in disguise because uh, anywhere from 50 to 70 percent of individuals uh, attending the t- uh, TB clinics are also HIV co-infected. Um, now moving from the epi to uh, the clinical, the signs and symptoms of pulmonary tuberculosis are very nonspecific. Uh, productive prolonged cough, usually over three weeks, chest pain, hemoptysis, along with systemic symptoms such as fever kills, night sweats, appetite loss, weight loss, easy fatigability. The challenges that we face uh, is the frequency and broad spectrum of other lung diseases among persons with HIV and AIDS, uh, the rapid progression of HIV-related tuberculosis and possibility of transmission to others as uh, you've seen from the outbreak scenarios requiring uh, rapid diagnosis and the effects of immunodeficiency on clinical symptoms and signs of tuberculosis. This particular slide summarizes most of the important information. I'm going to touch on some of it uh, subsequently. So in the diagnosis, one of the challenges is that while we've relied throughout the world on acid fast mere microscopy for the diagnosis of tuberculosis, in the setting of HIV infection, especially in advanced HIV with uh, low CD4 counts, uh, you seem to have bacillary uh, tuberculosis Also, instead of those uh, right or uh, left uh, or bilateral upper low cavitary lesions, you start having atypical radiographic manifestations and a lot of extra pulmonary tuberculosis. Then when it comes to management, you have the challenges of drug-drug interactions, especially between rifamycins and antiretroviral drugs and uh, the um, presence of immune uh, reconstitution inflammatory uh, syndrome. in the early HIV, primarily uh, normal CD4 count, TB presents as it would have in any HIV in uninfected person. It's in the advanced HIV that you start seeing all these uh, aspects that I'm talking about. This particular slide shows, take a look at the left hand side, in HIV positive, uh, uh, the 43% uh, were smear negative compared to 24% of um, HIV negative, uh, had a smear negative uh, sputum. This is early data coming out of Zambia and published uh, in 1993, but it, this is uh, some of the documentation for what I've uh, mentioned to you. The other thing is that uh, in addition to being influenced by degree of immunity, uh, HIV-positive persons are more likely than HIV-negative to have isolated extrapulmonary localization. In, uh, in some studies, more than half of them have uh, primary infection, pulmonary basal involvement, uh, a picture consistent with pneumonia, miliary uh, disease, or, hyalur, or mediastinal lymphadenopathy. But very importantly, and I've seen this and I've been burnt myself, Uh, People who show up uh, with uh, normal chest radiographs, uh, in some studies, ranging from 8 to 20%. I'm going to skip this one because it touches on what I've mentioned. But uh, this particular slide um, shows uh, how with advancing immunodeficiency, you see a larger percent of individuals with extrapulmonary tuberculosis. So when we talk about extrapulmonary TB, where does it show up? Uh, Mostly cervical nodes. Uh, less commonly axillary and even less commonly uh, inguinal nodes. You also see uh, mediastinal and hilar, or intra-abdominal nodes. We see evidence of disseminated disease, uh, pericareal um, effusions, um, sometimes uh, much more commonly than ascitis, uh, meningitis, and tuberculomas have been seen, as well as soft tissue abscesses. Um, in this recent report uh, coming out of uh, Southeast Asia, uh, in evaluating HIV-infected persons with bloodstream infections, almost 3% had bloodstream infections, but notice that 53% of those bloodstream infections were due to mycobacterium tuberculosis. basically shows you uh, which is the most common uh, HIV-associated opportunistic pathogen in settings uh, like that. Here's an example of uh, um often called in the old days primary tuberculosis. Here's uh, an example of someone with miliary tuberculosis um, seen in X-ray and CT scan. Just uh, for those of you who are fans of etymology and medicine, uh, it's called miliary because of its resemblance to millet seeds. Um, when you look at the diagnostic findings by cd 4 count, Uh, Look at the lower uh, left-hand row, uh, Mycobacteremia seen from 20 to 45% with low uh, CD4 counts defined as less than 200. So, in summary, to diagnose TB, the first thing that you must have is a high index of suspicion. Nothing replaces high index of suspicion. I can't tell you how often I have seen individuals who seek medical care are seen by multiple doctors who started them on fluoroquinolones for lower respiratory tract infection, in doing so partially treating tuberculosis and um, failing to submit the testing to diagnose tuberculosis. It's only after non-response that the diagnosis gets established. Guess what's been happening throughout that time? That person continued to transmit tuberculosis to um, other contacts. Uh, we will need to rely on different sources of information. And uh, as I've uh, underscored, it can present very differently in HIV-infected individuals compared to HIV-negative. You're not meant to read this. You have the, um, you have a citation here. But this is to show the existing recommendations for treatment of tuberculosis, which, which are, by the way, in the process of being revised but that rubbish is not due out and, uh, until about next year at best. Uh, we, uh, American Thoracic Society, CDC, and Infectious Disease Society of America come together to do these. But in essence, uh, the treatment of tuberculosis consists of two phases. The initial phase, which is that cluster to the left-hand side, and the continuation phase. The initial phase co- uh, consists of two months of daily four drugs isoniazid rifampin pyrazinamide and ethambutol if the person has drug susceptible tuberculosis then the continuation phase is an additional 4 months of isoniazid and rifampin which can be used uh, intermittently but i draw to your attention the two asterisks uh, that basically show that um, intermittent Treatment is contraindicated for HIV-infected individuals, especially uh, with evidence of immune deficiency. Um, We have learned uh, through experience that uh, highly intermittent therapy is likely to give rise to relapses and to rifampin resistance, which is why we recommend against it. Otherwise, treatment for HIV-infected individuals is pretty much the same. Uh, but I would uh, use daily or five times a week uh, treatment rather than twice a weekly or once weekly. The rifamycins, which are the linchpin to tuberculosis therapy, uh, do have significant interactions with all antiretrovirals except uh, AZT. And uh, inferverted, um, I know how to write them, not how to s- uh, pronounce them. Uh, once or twice uh, weekly regimens uh, will show high rate of rifampin resistance uh, if you have uh, low CD4 counts. And uh, rifamycins are very potent inducers of from P450, rifampin being the most potent inducer, rifapentine less so, and rifabutin the uh, least of the three, which is, uh, as you will see, the reason for us recommending uh, rifabutin. Here are some graphs, and basically what this shows is the increase in, um, uh, I'm sorry, the decrease in sequinivir, ritonivir, indivir, nilfinivir, lupinivir, and ritonivir, and imprenivir levels as a result of co-administration with rifamycins. And uh, less so with rifabutin, uh, however, you do see these um, drug-drug interactions and it's what guides many of the recommendations that I will touch on. As I mentioned before, rifabutin is a less uh, a potent inhibitor of the cytochrome uh, P450. Requires dosage adjustment due to effects by many other drugs. And um, PI is especially a booster with a causes cause a marked increase in serum rifabutin uh, concentrations. Um, and therefore, the dosage should be decreased. When using PI-based uh, regimens, with rifabutin, there's good virological and immunological outcomes when uh, co-administered with uh, protease inhibitor-based uh, antiretroviral therapy. Uh, it is a treatment of choice when persons cannot tolerate that NRTI-based uh, treatment. Uh, and noted, uh, this is based on expert opinion, not on comparative efficacy studies the drawback is its expense. In many parts of the world they just can't afford rifabutin. Uh, And the the updates that I'd like to share with you uh, have to do with changes in dosing schedules, especially on those uh, with low CD4 counts uh, who should never be given twice or once weekly therapy. I keep harping on this. Uh, Daily therapy can be either seven days per week or five uh, days per week if given by directly observed therapy and uh, if uh, mycobacterium tuberculosis isolate is a drug susceptible. The uh, newer under quotations, uh, because there's nothing new about them when you contrast that to all the antiretrovirals that we keep uh, seeing coming up, uh, rifabutin uh, is being used as a primary drug for uh, HIV-infected individuals receiving Uh, Drugs uh, which give rise to unacceptable drug-drug interactions uh, with rifamycins. And fluoroquinolones are becoming a very important alternative, um, especially when other drugs are not tolerated and uh, the organism is resistant uh, to rifamycins. Moxie is becoming the agent of choice in that setting. This is the first set of recommendations issued in 2007 updated, uh, hard to keep up. I'm I'm just going to go over some of these. Again, you're going to have copies of this, but by and large, uh, if you look at uh, a Fabrin-based antiretroviral therapy with rifampin-based, they seem to be well tolerated, low rates of discontinuation, uh, or PI-based ART with rifabutin-based, also low rates of discontinuation. The problem uh, is Navirapin-based ART with rifampin-based, PB um, treatment uh, where you are more likely to see hepatotoxicity uh, when used with isoniazid, rifampin, and pyrazinamide. Some other uh, changes uh, in the past, uh, we had not recommended changes in um, rifampin when co-administered with nadirapin. Now uh, the new recommendation is to not co-administer with uh, nivirapine, especially given the availability of other choices. If you're using uh, Maraviroc, uh, then you would need to increase the dose to 600 milligrams twice daily. When co-administered with rifampin, raltegravir, uh, you would need to increase the dose to 800 milligrams VID. Notice the column that says no change for the dose of rifampin in the middle section of the chart. As far as imprenivir, tizanivir, indinivir, nelfinivir, and sequinivir, should not be used uh, with rifampin. If you use uh, rifabutin with efavirenz, uh, then uh, you would need to increase the dose of rifabutin to 450 to 600 milligrams daily or in intermittent and with atravirin, the uh, there's no change, uh, the daily dose of rifabutin would be um, 300 m- uh, milligrams, no change with nivirapin. Um With uh, fosamprenavir, atazanavir, indivir, and nilfinavir, uh, the recommendation is to decrease the daily dose of rifabutin to 150 milligrams per day or if you're giving it thrice-weekly, use 300 milligrams uh, thrice-weekly. If you're using rifabutin with uh, Kaletra or ritonavir with sequinavir, again, the dose should be decreased to 150 milligrams every other day or thrice uh, per week. So, in summary, the rifamycins uh, for tuberculosis treatment and in HIV-infected uh, persons can be safely added to almost any antiretroviral regimen. You did see, however, the uh, regimens that are contraindicated, um, and uh, every effort should be made to treat uh, with rifamycins to uh, prevent the relapses, uh, increase the chances of uh, treatment success for tuberculosis and minimize the length of uh, time uh, with uh, toxicities one of the interesting components is that uh, in some studies it's been suggested that six months may not be as adequate for HIV infected individuals here at the very bottom I show you the HIV infected um, had um, a higher rate of recurrence than HIV uninfected so, have a low threshold for continuing antituberculosis therapy longer than the six months um, and guide it by clinical response and culture conversion. What about uh, when to start the ARV uh, treatment for persons with TB? Well, um, in general, if you're dealing with someone who has uh, low CD4 counts, almost uh, all ID physicians would treat for HIV uh, at the same time you're treating for TB. Uh, if the CD4 count is high, there are arguments uh, both in favor to start uh, concurrently or to delay. Again, it's based on expert opinion. The best data come from a SAPIT study published last year showing uh, decreased rates by um, initiating uh, antiretroviral drug uh, therapy early during TB Uh, treatment rather than the sequential, which is uh, done later uh, in the game. And again, this is a busy slide and you will have uh, copies of it, uh, but these are really powerful data. And last year at the International AIDS Conference, the results of the Camellia study in Cambodia also showed that the um, death rate was decreased by starting antiretroviral therapy at two weeks rather than at eight weeks of TB therapy. And uh, very importantly, 96.5% of survivors had undetectable HIV RNA. A word about uh, isoniazid preventive therapy, it's been shown to be mostly beneficial for PPD-positive individuals, not necessarily for uh, PPD-negative individuals. Um, The key is to rule out tuberculosis disease, which is a challenge Here is an algorithm that has been recently published, tried in Southeast Asia, showing how the sensitivity of a cough of of three weeks is only 33%. However, you increase that if you include cough or fever or night sweats of three weeks duration to 93%. Very importantly, the negative predictive value is 97%. So if you have this algorithm in that particular setting turns out negative, you can really rest assured that a person is unlikely to have tuberculosis and can use the recommended isoniazid regimens, which is recommended for nine months. Uh, I will show you some data interestingly that demonstrates that in some highly endemic settings, 36 months may be necessary. Six months is better than none, but uh, I'd rather wait, uh, use nine. Um, we have a new regimen that's still being evaluated in HIV-infected individuals of three months of isoniazid and rifapentine once weekly for three months for a total of 12 doses. It's just been shown to be effective in HIV-uninfected individuals presented uh, last month at the American Thoracic Society. Uh, This is a study from Botswana uh, published in Lancet, basically showing that in that particular setting, 36 months of isoniazid is... uh, really key uh, in PPD positive or tuberculosis skin test positive individuals. In the tuberculosis skin test negative individuals, it looks like the heavy lifting is done by the antiretroviral therapy and the prevention of tuberculosis is not as good as uh, for PPD positives. Um, the duration is limited in that setting. I'm going to skip over these. Um, pretty much covered all this and um, notice that uh, the uh, six-month regimen is uh, less optimal. Uh, just to touch on immune reconstitution syndrome, what I will do for you is I'll make sure that I cover that during the workshop this afternoon. But uh, this is uh, happening anywhere between 8 and 30% of the cases. And... Uh, There are diagnostic criteria, what's really important about an immune reconstitution inflammatory uh, syndrome is that it's a diagnosis of exclusion and I would uh, encourage you to look at the criteria. The person must have responded to TB therapy and uh, the antiretroviral drugs uh, should have been given within the last uh, three months and there are major and minor criteria for um, the diagnosis. Uh, this is a complex table just to show that in congregate settings, uh, there's a high risk of transmission, and it's the reason why we rely on um, infection control precautions. I just wanted to share two slides uh, with you. Uh, the, uh, this is a collaborative study done between CDC and HERSA, looking uh, in 2002 at uh, all grantees and showing how Less than 35% of persons uh, were receiving a tuberculo skin test as recommended. And uh, we now have a collaborative study really focusing on uh, New York and California to improve that and uh, hopefully get better outcomes. Uh, resources for you. There are four uh, regional training and medical consultation centers in the country listed here, San Francisco, Heartland, Uh, Southeast and uh, New Jersey, and uh, you should feel free to call them at no cost to you It's your taxpayer dollars at work. And I must acknowledge uh, the work done by others uh, who I borrowed liberally from for this presentation. Thank you for your attention.
0: Okay, um, we have about ten minutes for questions. Once again, we have four microphones where you can write on a card. And these slides will be available out on the resource table this afternoon, so you can pick up a copy of the slides.
2: And good morning. I'm Dr. Wilbur Jordan. Uh, we test all of our patients for uh, PPD. However, TB control in L.A. County lacks run uh, I don't. The first uh, patients we ident- we isolated, we had isolated all of our known PPD positives, and we did a QuantiFERON, and all 25 were QuantiFERON negative. Uh, so my question is, one, what do you think of QuantiFERON? and two, we have patients who've been referred in who will come in with a note saying they're Quantifiron positive, but when we do a PPD, they're negative, and they're on treatment. So, where does this particular
1: thing uh, work no, 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 no. So you're raising a really <laughs> important question about uh, the use of um, interferon gamma release assay or the tuberculin skin test. Uh, the present recommendations that we have is to use one or the other, but don't try to use both. Uh, unless you have a very high index of suspicion that TB infection is present, and you're really looking to establish that diagnosis what you're seeing is very often in um, HIV infected immunodeficient individuals uh, they may not be as good in producing uh, interferon gamma release um, in the assay and studies are still underway to demonstrate uh, the value of quantiferin in the HIV infected population now granted the working skin test is also known to uh, be negative, especially in highly immunodeficient you know, individuals, you see energy uh, in there. But in the setting where you have one or the other positive, I would go back to what was your pretest probability. If you think that that person was gonna, uh, likely to be infected, I would act on any positive test, especially in the setting of HIV, which is the highest risk factor for disease progression. I give these individuals the benefit of the doubt. Um, but if we're looking for excuses for not acting, then I would uh, be careful about uh, using one test to uh, confirm the other. The, I know that California, especially San Francisco, and, other, uh, and New York, have a lot of experience with and Gold. I think the jury's still out, and we are still learning about how to best use these tests. Uh, but you're presenting one of the most common questions that we get at CEC and that these model centers are getting. I appreciate that. I wish I could give you a better answer, but studies are still underway. Uh, the, and the bottom line is, don't use one to rule in or rule out the other.
0: Okay, a quick question: If the patient from Mexico with a CD4 count of 500, undetectable viral load, positive PPD, negative chest X-ray, would you treat the patient?
1: Absolutely. Well, with isoniazid, yes. Um, if you sent cultures out, I would wait till the cultures come back. Um, but uh, Person has um, no symptoms, no fever, no nitrip, no cough, negative test x ray, and positive PPD. Yes. If there was anyone ever deserving as I, I did, it would be that person. And
0: can you talk a little bit about um, how to diagnose resistant TB, like gene, uh, genetic based testing, PCR?
1: Okay. Um, yeah, the, I, I didn't cover. Um, if I had had an hour, I would have covered multidrug-resistant TB and some of the new uh, diagnostic tests. Um, in essence, there are nucleic acid amplification tests. GenProbe uh, and uh, Roche um, make these uh, tests. They're very good and accurate, especially in people who have uh, radiographic findings. Um, we also – now, when you talk about genetic testing, we also do genotypes of isolates to take a look at uh, the – how identical are they um, in establishing relations uh, in clusters uh, to see if there's evidence of uh, community transmission. So that we're also doing with health departments, uh, so I'm not sure if they were referring to that type of genotyping or to some of the newer testing. I should also say that there, there was a publication earlier this year in the New England Journal uh, talking about gene expert um, for tuberculosis, uh, which enables also rifampin uh, resistance detection by uh, genetic uh, testing, PCR uh, testing. Um, that test has been approved by WHL, is not FDA approved, and we're working with FDA. In fact, the reason I'm not staying here for the rest of this week I'm going to be going to FDA to have a conversation with our friends there.
0: Talk about what the guidelines say about how often you should be doing uh, TST or IGRA testing. Is it yearly? Is it a diagnosis? How do you decide which patients get more than one test?
1: Um, I would, I would only do it once for most of the settings in the United States in our clinics. However, if you tell me that this is uh, that um, Mexican-born individual who's gone back home, or any foreign-born individual who goes back home with likelihood of recurrent exposures, I would repeat them. Uh, We do repeat them in healthcare workers as a tool to identify evidence of uh, transmission in uh, healthcare settings, Uh, but in most places in the United States, the likelihood of reinfection with tuberculosis is relatively low. But I would, uh, you know, I, I would be very cautious not to make that a blanket statement. It needs to be an individualized decision, and we've seen many individuals Uh, from India who go back home repeatedly, and I wouldn't be repeating those. Dr. Marshall
2: Souza, McGregor Clinic, Fort Myers. I, Dr. Astro, thank you very much for that nice talk. I just briefly want to share with you my experience about tuberculosis. I went to medical school in India, 1967 to 1972. We had a special session on tuberculosis, and TB was taught to us, practically it came out of my ears. I have seen tuberculosis affecting every part of the body. Tuberculous endometritis is a cause of sterility and a hyperplastic mass in the right iliac fossa. It's called, you know, hyperplastic tuberculosis. Uh, I had a patient almost 10 years ago, African American, 35-year-old, good CD4 count, doing well, comes to the hospital emergency room complaining of fever and new-onset atrial fibrillation. Chest x-ray, normal. We admitted him to the hospital. Blood cultures, negative. Sputum for AFB, negative. Only chest x-ray showed a boot-shaped heart. I admit him to ICU. I get an ID consult because I'm an internal medicine physician. Mm -hmm. ID comes and starts him on broad-spectrum antibiotic. Next day, he develops cardiac tamponade. And my cardiologist was very kind enough to put a Cardio, you know, pericardiosynthesis catheter and we drained the pericardial fluid. We treated him with antibiotics and sent him home. In the meanwhile, I kept on telling my ID physician, you know, his blood cultures were negative, chest x-ray was negative, his sputum AFB was negative. I kept on telling my ID physician, this smells and sounds like TB, TB to me. And we sent the patient home on antibiotics. And after a few weeks, I get a call from the uh, lab saying that his, uh, his pericardial fluid AFB was positive. Mm-hmm. So I treat him with four-drug treatment. He was on a non-protease inhibitor uh, ART, and he did very well. He was on sastiva and combavir, and we treated him for more than one year with anti-tuberculosis treatment, we repeated his echo and this guy did fantastically well. So my point here is all physicians, think of TB, TB, TB. Sputum negative, chest x-ray negative. Thank you very much.
1: Uh, thank you, I appreciate it. Actually, what, what you've described is what I call the paradox of living in a low TB incidence country. What's happening is precisely that uh, well-educated, certified uh, clinicians failing to suspect the diagnosis of tuberculosis. So the point that I tried to make early during the talk, you've exemplified on, and I thank you for that.
0: Just two quick questions, quick answers. For treating latent TB, can we use twice weekly regimens in HIV?
1: Um, You can, but I wouldn't.
0: And, And what is the role of BCG vaccine in the United States?
1: BCD is uh, reserved uh, only for settings uh, where uh, you have uh, someone who's unable uh, to take preventive therapy and is continuously exposed to someone with uh, tuberculosis. Secondly, for settings uh, where the person is exposed to multidrug resistant TB and whereby isoniazid and rifampin are not useful. Um, There's a third setting that I'm uh, forgetting. By the way, uh, we are in the process of developing guidelines that are being issued uh, with the the Advisory Council for the Elimination of Tuberculosis. Uh, Barbara Seaworth was uh, one of the key players in this. Uh, For many of us who are going to work overseas and are being exposed to tuberculosis, so uh, preventive measures that include consideration of the use of VCD, if you happen to be working in settings such as uh, KwaZulu-Natal where they've had these outbreaks of excessively drug resistant tuberculosis and where um, infection control measures may be inadequate. In that particular setting, I would uh, consider taking. However, underscore, this is an HIV uh, conference. HIV is a contraindication of BCG because you get disseminated BCgiosis.
0: Okay, so no PCG in someone with HIV infection. Right. Good. Okay, another two. Thank you very much. Thank you.